Well, I also am thankful for the long-standing friendship that uh, Jeff and Jen and I have had, and Jeff told a little bit about that um, just uh, a moment ago. And my family and I are, are, are overjoyed uh, to be here at Hope Fellowship uh, with them. And if any of you would like to know stories about what we were like in the early 90s in attending college, I'll be right down here <laughs> after the service. So you can just, I'm sure there'll be a line of your kids right there, first, first and foremost. All right, well, let me pray for us uh, before we um, hop into God's word here. Father, thank you uh, for this moment in the service to open your word and to hear what it has to say to us. And Lord, um, especially as we look into uh, Luke 10 and uh, how this applies to the situation uh, in Afghanistan and what we can be doing about that. Lord, would you open our hearts? Uh, and Lord, I know I, I need your help right now. So Lord, I ask for your spirit to come to fill me and to fill us as we hear and receive uh, what you want to say to us. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week it has been nearly impossible to scroll through your news feed or turn on your TV or hop on social media and not hear something about the situation in Afghanistan. As the U.S. forces pulled out and the Taliban just took over the country and we saw these heartbreaking images of people crowding into the airport and hanging on to planes and trying to get out of the country to get to safety because they feared for their lives. And I've uh, actually been in touch with uh, one brother uh, who I served with overseas who works with a uh, Christian community development organization. And uh, they still have at least one staff person, a, a foreign staff person, I should say, um, in Afghanistan on the ground, and they're trying to get him out. And you can't get a, a visa or a plane flight out. And a, a podcast I listened to this week, it was a panel of Christians who had formerly served in the military in Afghanistan or are serving refugees here in the United States. And especially for uh, those who had served in the military, then the two men there are, uh, I believe, are now serving uh, as pastors or in full-time ministry. And they're getting calls from other service members just asking them, what, what was all that for? What was that investment for? And I think for the rest of us, um, it's probably brought on a, a range of emotions as well. Hopelessness, fear, anger, frustration. And I, I have to confess, I've experienced all of these at some point this week. So what, what can we do in the face of a global crisis like this one? How can we help those who are a, a world away and are out facing all of this, this trauma and, and this, this difficulty. And even more than that, where do we find the strength for such a task, for such a thing? Well, I believe that's what our passage is going to teach us this morning, as Jeff read from Luke 10, 25 to 37. Um, as he said, is popularly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I believe it answers, uh, gives answers to the, these daunting questions. And our, our main point, what this teaches us, is this, Christ's disciples have both the power and the ability to extend help and hospitality to the stranger. And I'll read that one more time for folks taking notes. Christ's disciples have both the power and the ability to extend help and hospitality to the stranger. Now, in the, in the chapter before, chapter 9, we see in, in verse 51, 
as it says in the NIV, that Jesus has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. So he is now making the turn towards Jerusalem, completing the mission, getting ready to complete the mission that the Father has given to him. And he's told his disciples this. He said, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, killed, and on the third day raised to life. And as such, he's preparing them for what it's going to be like to be disciples after he's gone. So he sent them out to heal and to preach. They've seen his miraculous provision in the feeding of the 5,000. And three of his followers, Peter, James, and John, have seen him transfigured. And in all of his glory, meeting with Moses and Elijah, once again talking about what he is going to fulfill in Jerusalem. And they hear the voice of the Father, again affirming, this is my beloved Son. And this is all giving definition to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Who is to be followed and how? And then we come to Luke 10. And again, we see it. the chapter opens up with sending. Because a disciple is someone who is sent and goes in response. And we see this in the first two stories of chapter 10. And there's also another element present here in these. There's three stories here in chapter 10. Another element is hospitality. And we see that the 72, as they're sent out, they're to receive the hospitality of the villages they go into. And right after our story, we see Jesus going to the Mary Martha's house and receiving hospitality. And that's where we find our story today that we're going to look at. Luke 10, 25 to 37. And I think the text can be divided into a two-act play, both beginning with questions. So act number one, our first point, is a question about eternal life. This is verses 25 to 28. And the question comes from a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses. And as we have often seen in the Gospels, the experts in the law, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't have the best relationship. There was a lot of friction there. And it's the same here. It says in verse 25, he wanted to put Jesus to the test. Perhaps he's trying to trip him up to get all these people who are so interested in following him to stop following him. And he asked him this, Teacher, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Kenneth Bailey, who is a New Testament scholar and as a missionary in the Middle East, um, points this out. That's a bit unusual to ask a question about what I need to do to inherit something. Usually what you do to inherit something, when your parents set up their will or their trust for you as, as their child, you're just born. That's it. Just by virtue of the fact that you're their your child, you will inherit. But Jesus returns this question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers by quoting what Jesus had identified before as the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now maybe the lawyer I've heard Jesus say this before, because in Matthew 22, where, the, where Jesus is the one saying these very words, it's also a lawyer who asked him about what are the two great commandments, or the greatest commandments. Perhaps it's the same person. Or maybe he just knew this is part of Levitical law. Whatever the case is, he knows, he knows the right answer. And the first part is, love God. An important nuance here, it said it's an easy word to kind of skip over as we're going through this. 
And the first half is the word all. It's not love God with part of your heart, part of your soul, part of your strength, or part of your mind. It's all. You could even substitute the word whole. Whole heart, whole mind, whole strength, whole soul. Now, all of my kids have passed the part in their academic career where they have had fractions in math. And apparently, my oldest, my daughter Sophia, uh, when she was going through, she loved fractions. I don't know if she still does. You can ask her after the service. Um, but she loved fractions. I remember looking at her homework, and you know, you'd see those those pie charts, right? And they're split up into different sections, and you got bar graphs, and you got all these things that are all sectioned out, and you're trying to figure out the whole of it. Um, and some of us can probably remember that from our uh, career in third grade math and, and mastering fractions. But when it comes to our relationship with God, there are no fractions. The picture here is that you are loving God all the time with the whole of your being. An impossible task for any human being to accomplish. And Jesus commends the answer given by the lawyer. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And it, it seems like Jesus' answer here should actually give the lawyer a little bit of pause. Wait, wait a minute. You mean I have to love God with all of my heart all of the time? You think maybe some words like from, from James chapter 2 will come to his mind. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. But this isn't where the lawyer goes with it. He is still wanting to justify himself, to make sure that he will inherit eternal life. He knows that part of that equation, part of that equation, part of the litmus test as to whether he loves God or not is how he loves his neighbor. And that's going to bring him to the second question. That's going to be our second point, the second act. A question about neighbors. Verses 29 through 37. And in verse 29, it tells us his motivation. He's desiring to justify himself. Again, by some act, he's trying to see if he is worthy to inherit eternal life. So he asks, and who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus, in typical Middle Eastern fashion, doesn't answer with a, a direct answer. But he launches into a story. And, and Jeff mentioned earlier, and I know some, some of you are already familiar, my wife and I, uh, had the opportunity to represent Christ among the Muslim population here in the Chicagoland area. And in our context, stories speak very powerfully, sometimes more powerfully than giving a direct answer, because story has this, this way of kind of getting behind defenses. It, it offers a way to meditate and to really reflect on a situation. And like any good storyteller, Jesus begins by setting the scene. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, as it says in verse 30. Now, this was a well-known road at the time, and it was known for being treacherous. It was lined with caves, other little enclaves for robbers or, or other people to hide out and to assail any kind of oncoming traveler. And then you have a man who's making a journey by himself. He's not taking any company with him. It's like that scene in your favorite suspense movie. And you see that guy walking down the hall or down the alley at night and it's dark and you hear the eerie music start 
to play. And you think, what are you doing? Don't go in there. Can't you hear the eerie music? Nothing good happens when that music is playing. And sure enough, somewhere along his journey, robbers assail this poor man. And they do three things to him. They strip him of everything he has, they beat him, and they depart. And the result, as the text tells us, is they leave him half dead. And while this man is lying on the dirt road, badly injured, stripped of everything, Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. You can almost see the expert in the law. You can almost see this lawyer, his posture straightens up. And he stands tall and he goes, aha, the hero of the story. Here he is, my co-religionist, my co-nationalist. Here he is. He's going to make everything right. And Jesus says, the priest came. He saw the injured man, and they made an intentional effort to pass by on the other side. Well, not all hope is lost, because next, Jesus says, a Levite comes along. And so you can, the lawyer might say, okay, the first guy, that's, that's the cautious example. Don't be like him. This Levite, he's the guy, he's going to make it right. He's going to save the day. But Jesus says he does the same exact thing. He comes, he sees, and he makes an intentional effort to pass by on the other side. And it, it can be easy to assign motives to these guys. Why, why do they do this? Why did they react this way? Why did they pass by? Perhaps it was that they're both servants in the temple, and they knew that to perform their Levitical duties, they couldn't touch a dead body. If they did, they'd be unclean, so they couldn't perform their duties. So maybe, maybe that's why. But there's a, there's a little subtlety here, right? Because it says that the guy was only half dead. Perhaps they needed the insight of someone like a Miracle Max from the Princess Bride, that your friend is only mostly dead, not all dead. All dead, all he can do is go through his pockets, look for loose change. But mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Perhaps they felt, if they stopped and helped, that that same fate would befall them. The text doesn't tell us. But they came, and they saw, and they passed by without concern. And as Jesus continues the story, he uses this hopeful conjunction in verse 33. But, dot, 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 a Samaritan. And you can, again, see the lawyer at this point slump forward, you know, shoulders roll forward. Are you kidding me, a Samaritan? Because Jews and Samaritans were enemies. They did not like each other. There was historical animosity here. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament when there was a, a divided or a united kingdom at first of Israel. And then that kingdom will divide into north and south, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Israel with its, with its capital in Samaria and Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. And so these two would fight wars with each other, and eventually, because of their disobedience to God, they are swept off into exile by the Assyrians and Babylonians. And while they're in exile, the, the northern tribes of Israel begin to intermix, and they begin to adapt, adapt some of the pagan practices of the Assyrians and Babylonians. And as such, the, those who came back from the kingdom of Judah saw them as kind of 
half-breeds or saw them as kind of unfaithful to God's law and saw themselves as faithful. And this inserting a Samaritan into the story here, this is not only a shock for the lawyer. This is a shock for Jesus' disciples as well. I mean, after all, his disciples are Jewish. And in chapter 9, Jesus actually sends his disciples into a Samaritan village, and they're rejected. So this is a shock for them as well. Yet in stark contrast to the priest and the Levite, this Samaritan comes, he sees, and has compassion. And by using the character of the Samaritan in this way, Jesus is redefining the term neighbor for the lawyer and for his disciples. Neighbor is not someone who is just like you, someone from your same socioeconomic background, someone from your same national background, from from your same religious background. But we find neighbors even among our supposed enemies, or those we might be considered to be strangers. The idea here is that anyone created in the image of God is your neighbor. And the Samaritan and Jesus story demonstrates the compassionate response of showing hospitality and help to this injured and hurting Jewish man that he doesn't even know. Because for him as a Samaritan, he he takes this man, binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey, goes down that same treacherous road that this man was just attacked on, takes him to a village, a Jewish village, not a Samaritan village, finds an inn, pays for his, his care and his keep. And this was at great cost to him because he was also at risk and helping this this man out. And then Jesus pauses and asks this question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the Lord responds, the one who showed him mercy. Now it's almost as if he can't bring himself to say, it was the Samaritan. But he recognizes mercy has been shown. And so he can at least give him credit for that. And Jesus, holding up the example of the Samaritan, says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Now, Jesus is speaking to the lawyer here in the narrative. But like we said, this is like a two-act play. So let's imagine right now that Jesus pivots towards us. And he asks us this question. Who is your neighbor? So what does that mean for us today? To go and do likewise, Jesus' command. Well, let me suggest two applications, and then the second application is going to have three suggestions with it. So two applications with three suggestions in the second one. Number one, begin with God's love in your heart. And let's remember the lawyer's original question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Earlier when I was talking about the background for this passage, I mentioned that in the chapter 4, in Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. As a matter of fact, there are two more references in this chapter to this, in chapter 9. That Jesus was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men is going to be crucified and to be raised to life three days later. And he's going to do this because all of us have sinned. 
All of us have rebelled against God through our thoughts, our words, and actions, like mistreating our neighbor. And all of us, much like the man on the Jericho Road, because of our own sinfulness, lay broken and bleeding and helpless. But the Lord Jesus, like the Samaritan, comes and picks us up and cares for us and pays for our sin debt by his death on the cross so that we might be made whole if we place our trust in him. This is how we get the love of God into our hearts and, begin, and can begin to love him with all of our being. So if you're here this morning and you're just checking out Christianity, maybe a neighbor invited you or something like this, let me encourage you to put your trust in Christ and to be healed in your soul so that you can begin to love God with all of your heart. But I, I'm assuming that most of the folks here, and, and I know many of you, are followers of Christ already. So I'm speaking to brothers and sisters largely. And you know, like me, that this is a daily struggle to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know in myself, this is an impossible task. But praise be to God, that's why he has put his spirit in our hearts. So that we can love God with all that we are. And I'm reminded of a quote by George Mueller. And some of you might be familiar with George Mueller. He was a 19th century uh, British evangelist who ran an orphanage in Bristol, England, where he cared for 10,000 orphans. And I know some of you have large families, but imagine 10,000 kids. And he never actually raised money. He just trusted God for the provision uh, for that orphanage and for caring for every, all those children. Uh, but he said this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how, much, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. Now, I realize most of us have very busy lives. You know, you get the kids up in the morning, you get them ready for school, you drop them off, you go to work, you work all day, and then you probably have some extracurricular activities you're doing with them, sports or whatnot, uh, or you're serving as a mission group leader here at Hope or some other kind of church activity. And trying to get an hour of Bible reading and prayer in every day, it's, it's just not going to happen. But this is also why this doesn't have to be uh, an hour of Bible reading and prayer every day. Maybe something as simple as, do you have a scripture verse that you can be meditating on during the day? Or just taking 10 minutes here or there in pockets of the day to be in prayer for certain things. And the point is, we, we access the power that we have to love God with all of our being, because that's what flows out into love for neighbor. Love for God is primary. But that's our, our second application, is practice help and hospitality for neighbor. Now again, the definition that Jesus is using here in this passage is anyone created in the image of God. That's all of humanity. And so it includes people who are not like us, people we might identify as strangers. Now in the current situation that we're talking about, this specific situation, the situation in Afghanistan, people who come from a different culture and area of a world than we do, who are facing this crisis. 
and have been traumatized by it? How can we extend hospitality and help to them right now? So here's the three suggestions for those who are, are taking notes. One is prayer. And, you know, as you've noticed, there have been some resources that have gone out on GroupMe this week on how to pray for Afghanistan. So uh, I can point you to those. If you didn't get those, feel free to see me. I'd be happy to make sure you get those. Um, but just to mention a few items right now, uh, if, you, if you want to jot these down. Number one, let's remember our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And I, I talked about uh, the podcast I listened to this week. And one of the hopeful things that they all mentioned, all four panelists in that podcast, was the growing church in Afghanistan. Matter of fact, next to the church in Iran, it is percentage-wise the fastest-growing church in the Muslim world. So there is reason for hope. This is proof that God's plan moves forward, no matter what. He is not hindered. But let's be let's be praying for our brothers and sisters there. Let's pray for their protection and let's pray for their witness to shine brightly, and that God's church would continue to grow. Let's also pray for the vulnerable, the women and children who are there, who are trapped, and and they have nowhere to go. And I know it sounds strange, but let's pray for the leadership of the Taliban. Let's pray that they would hear the gospel. Let's pray that their hearts would be transformed and that they could be, have an effect on transforming the nation of Afghanistan. And this is putting into practice what Jesus told us. It's not just our passage today, but what Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 44, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And I know one of the, pra- one of the practices this week uh, that some of us were doing was setting our alarm uh, at 2 o'clock every day to remember to pray for Afghanistan. So that's one way you can incorporate this into your daily rhythm of life. Second suggestion. Now, as we saw in our passage today, the Samaritan helping the, the wounded man, it came at a cost to him. And just as it came at a cost to him, so it will come at a cost to us. And I know we uh, don't always like talking about it, but finances are an issue. And I mentioned in the beginning a friend of mine that served overseas, uh, I served overseas with, and he's working for a Christian community development agency called Global Hope Network. Their goal is to help villages around the world break the cycle of extreme poverty by providing things like education, food, and sustainable income. And they still have Afghan, national Afghan workers on the ground serving people, providing things like food and cookware and some basic necessities. So if you'd like some more information about that, uh, like I said, I also want to regroup me, but see me if you didn't get it and you'd like to participate, and, and we can get you uh, connected. But lastly, third, welcoming refugees. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Christine Pohl uh, released a book called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. In the book, she says this, Claims of loving all humankind, of welcoming the other, have to be accompanied by the hard work of actually welcoming a human being into a real place. Now, one example of this is a story I came across in a prayer guide. It's called 30 Days of Prayer for the Muslim World. It usually goes out during the month of Ramadan, and then it's encouraging Christians to pray for Muslims during that time. But this is a particular story about a church in Houston, Texas, that held an event for Afghan translators who um, had served with the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. Let me read this. Hundreds of Houston's Afghan immigrants served as translators for U.S. military personnel. But few Texans knew this 
a nun thanked them for their service. No one knows who we are and what we did in Afghanistan for the U.S., says Najib, one of the former translators. A Christian worker named Bob got to know Najib and some of Houston's other Afghans by sponsoring families that were beginning their new lives as U.S. citizens. Shocked at the lack of respect the former translators received, Bob decided to do something about it and organized a banquet to honor the men at Tallowood Baptist Church. During the banquet, U.S. Army veterans shared heroic stories of Afghan translators saving their comrades' lives. And Afghans told their stories of bravely and loyally serving alongside American forces. Church members not only gained a new appreciation for the men's service, but they also began to appreciate that many of the Afghans they saw in local businesses, restaurants, and stores were patriots and heroes, not Muslim terrorists. These deeper connections have led to deeper conversations. One day, Bob asked Najib if he'd ever had a dream featuring a holy man dressed in white. Yes, said Najib, who excitedly shared the details. The holy man took me by the hand to a pool of water. He then poured water over my head and said, you will perform this same action on many others. The dream, similar to dreams many other Muslims have experienced, led Najib to find faith in Jesus. And before a recent trip to visit family in Afghanistan, he asked Bob for two Bibles, one for his father and one for his Muslim imam leader. Now, Beth and I have also had similar experiences to this one, uh, because when we were first married, Beth got a job at World Relief, teaching English as a second language to refugees. And on two different occasions, we actually had parties for her students one at Easter and one at Christmas. And this was a time when uh, we didn't have any kids, so we had more energy and I had more hair. Uh, so we were young and crazy. But we had the opportunity to host some wonderful people. And then they had fled from places like Somalia, Burundi, Iraq, Burma. And these are people who, who left civil war they had been politically persecuted, religiously persecuted, and we got to, to hear their stories and actually interact with them. Now, it's one thing to hear that on the news. It's another thing to hear it from someone who's actually experienced it. So, and this is not too unlike what some of the people in Afghanistan are experiencing right now. And at these parties, we, we shared a meal together. We played games. We had an Easter egg hunt and an Easter egg hunt with precious refugee children who had never done it before. It's the fastest Easter egg hunt you will ever see in your life. We put on a Christmas play and it was the, you know, into simple English so that he could understand it and I had to, someone actually even translating that into Swahili. And at the end of that, a young Muslim man said, that's the first time I've ever heard that story about the birth of Christ. We also had a Kenyan brother we partnered with. And he came and shared a devotional at our, our Easter party, talking about why the death and resurrection of Christ was important. And again, for the first time, especially students from Somalia and Burundi, heard the gospel in a language they could understand, and that was in our home in Waukegan, Illinois. And each of these times ended with us giving out gift baskets, which include things like dental hygiene, writing utensils, but also uh, things like the Jesus film in their heart language so that they could understand. And they were, they were beautiful times. Times to, to share and show the hospitality and love of Christ. And none of it could have happened if it wasn't for partners 
for other believers that we had partnered with, especially our local church, who provided things for us like the church bus and a bus driver to transport Beth's refugee students from downtown Chicago to our home all the way up north. And you may have seen in the Hope newsletter that World Relief is planning on resettling, and this is just World Relief. There are other relief agencies resettling Afghan refugees here, but World Relief is going to be resettling 2,500 Afghan refugees throughout the nation, some of them right here in DuPage County. So uh, there are three Hope families who've already expressed interest in being a part of this effort. Uh, If you uh, would be interested in that, my uh, email address is in the Hope newsletter. Uh, So take a look at the Hope newsletter and you can contact me that way, or you can just give my contact information uh, after the service today. So let me sum up with this, and then I want to do something a little different here at the end. As we've seen from our passage today, because the Lord Jesus has poured his love into our hearts through our relationship with him, we can be motivated by our love for God, which flows into our love for neighbor. And like the Samaritan, we can go and do likewise to these coming Afghan refugees and others as well. And then, so this is normally the place where I would uh, end with a prayer. But what I'd like to do is take just a few moments right here at the end. And I'd like us all to bow in silent prayer and pray over the requests I mentioned earlier for uh, these of what's happening in Afghanistan. So if we could um, bow our heads silently, and then I will be closing us um, after we've had an opportunity just to pray over a few of these things. So let's start by praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Next, let's pray over the vulnerable who are there especially women and children, that they would receive the help that they need. Lastly, let's pray for God to get a hold of lives of the leaders of the Taliban, that their hearts would be transformed by the power of the gospel. Father, we lay these requests at your feet. And Lord, we thank you uh, that it tells us uh, in the book of Revelation that our prayers ascend to you and that you return them to the earth uh, in power, uh, just like lightning and earthquakes and rumbles of thunder, Lord, that uh, we can have an impact right now through these prayers in Afghanistan and affecting the situation there right now. So Lord, we do pray that you would be giving us in the days ahead your wisdom and your guidance. Uh, How do you want Hope Fellowship to be involved? Lord, how do you want uh, the people here in our congregation, what do you ask of us? So, Lord, we ask you to move and for your name to be glorified in this situation. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.